1: Welcome to River Cafe Table 4, a production of iHeartRadio and Atomized Studios.
2: A conversation takes place every Thursday morning between me and Carrie Fukunaga. It begins like this. What are we going to cook on Sunday night?
1: You called it dramatic. It does look like a murder scene. It's like you're, you're trying scene. to hide yeah. the body of the fish. <laughs> it's somehow been revealed by the elements.
2: It is a whole fish covered in salt. It's kind of an eccentric recipe, isn't it? It is kind of weird. Ever since February 21st, when Carrie came back to London to direct the series Masters of the Air, we have cooked dinner together for the same group of six friends for 24 Sundays.
1: I hadn't thought about it as being dramatic before I picked it, but I suppose there's a whole theatrical element to it. I remember seeing the way people do it in Italy, for example, you know, and they sit there and they crack open the salt and it's a whole process. And then using the two spoons, you know, slowly pulling off that soft, juicy flesh that retains all of its moisture.
2: You are destroying the evidence.
1: (laughs) Afterwards, especially. You
2: to say when you serve it and then you crack it open, maybe nobody would know. All all the best
1: food, you destroy the evidence. You destroy
2: the evidence. Right now, if my voice sounds hoarse, it's due to celebrating the premiere of No Time to Die, including a screening in Monaco, where we all planned not just what to wear, where to stay, but what we were going to eat. Cary flew on to New York for more Bond, and the first text I received from him was a photo of a tomato sauce he'd made on arrival. Everyone knows Cary is a great writer and a great director. I know Carrie is a great cook. Your mother was Swedish and your father Japanese. I mean,
1: my mom was like a Midwestern Swede, essentially, you know? And so, like, for her, cooking was, like, I think very Midwestern. But, like, for Christmas, her gift to people would be doing a Swedish meatball mix, you know, and give the sort of spice package away to people so they can make, you know, Swedish meatballs. My dad... Had kind of his go to favorites. One of the things, like when I started going to friends' houses and seeing how other people lived, it was different was that no matter what my dad made, it could be spaghetti, he still had rice with the meal.
2: Spaghetti with rice?
1: Always rice always on the side. Rice, yeah. you know, always white rice yeah. on the side with, yeah. in the rice maker.
2: Yeah.
1: All the time. And then in the morning, there was always rice, fried rice for breakfast. So.
2: And did he grow up, was he born in Japan or in no, the No,
1: he, States? he, um, so he's, third generation which makes me fourth generation Mm. and my grandparents are considered nisei second generation but they're kind of a special class because they were sent back to japan for their education so it's a different name which was kibe and so they're more japanese i'd say than american they would speak japanese Mm. to each other and Mm -hmm.
2: and, uh do you speak japanese
1: uh you know like uh like my dad's generation, they understand it, but they can't speak yeah. it. And then my generation, if we speak it, it's because we learned in school. So, mm. so I studied after university and lived in Japan for a while. I was teaching English and French and, and snowboarding. So it was great. I was living in Hokkaido, which was like a really. I think, Did you say snowboarding? Yeah, snowboarding.
2: So you were in the ski area. For yeah, Japan. Hokkaido, like the northern, wow. northern island. Is it very regional Japanese food? Can you would you have a different kind of?
1: It's very regional. Yeah.
2: What was, What was it like there?
1: Well, it's uh, a lot of fresh vegetables, soba especially, which yeah. is a you know big part of New Year's soba. Uh, uni,
2: yeah, a
1: lot of uni from Hokkaido. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just seafood in general. But um, yeah, I would say the buckwheat and the uni are like the two things I think of when I think of Hokkaido.
2: Hmm.
1: After Hokkaido, I think Kyushu for me has like the next sort of most distinct sort of food. Where is that? Kyushu is an island in the south. My family's from the southern part of Honshu. They're from the last county, the bottom of Honshu, which is from Yamaguchi, which is right next to Hiroshima. And Kyushu is kind of in that region. And Kyushu, for example, one of the things they're known for is, aside from also a lot of different fish and, and produce, is uh, horse meat, for example. Oh. So uh, horse sashimi is a, mm. is a specialty there.
2: Really? What's that yeah. taste like?
1: I really like it. You know, mm. it's a, it comes in a kind of a, you dip it in sort of a sweeter soy sauce, mm. sometimes with like, you know, green onions. It's, it's not super tender, but it's also mm. not, you know, it's, it's similar to beef chuck. I remember I had this moment the last time I was in Tokyo for work where I was at a kind of a group dinner and there was a guy sitting across from me that he was half Asian like me. And I think he was trying to have one of those, like, who's more exotic competitions (laughs) with me. And I I didn't realize it was happening until until he was kind of like, you know, what's the weirdest thing you've you've ever had or eaten? And I was like, I think the two strangest things I can imagine eating are either like whale blubber yeah. Or spiders. Okay. Uh, and whale blubber is in Alaska with a buddy of mine I was in film school with who's Inuit. And you eat the whale blubber when you're on the ice because it actually has a lot of calories in it. It keeps yeah. you warm. And the spider was kind of an anomaly that uh, when I was traveling in Cambodia, late 90s, actually with a Japanese guy that I met in one of the hostels, we were motorcycling across the country. He wanted to detour to this town that was known for its stir-fried sort of spiders, these giant spiders, yeah. which to me yeah. tasted like crab. Slapshell yeah. crab.
2: I was gonna um, say, there's, yeah, we eat crab yeah. like spiders, yeah, but not a spider thing. like spider.
1: But he wanted to one up me, and he's like, "Well, have you ever had horse?"
2: Oh, <laughs> and <laughs> and you I, said,
1: "I said I hadn't," you know, and he's he was really satisfied that he'd eaten a lot of horse, <laughs> and I just wasn't sure really. <laughs> Did he win that competition?
2: (laughs) I think he won that competition. He
1: won that competition, didn't he? Maybe.
2: I hate to say that you might have lost, having played cards with you, that you might have lost that competition. (laughs) What did spiders taste like?
1: The ones I had in Cambodia were so covered in sauce, they mainly Uh, tasted like the sauce with a kind of a crunchy texture with the white meat of the spider inside of the legs. The body was pretty gross, I have to say. It wasn't mine. Uh, Maybe it's an acquired taste.
2: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Help helps is a maxim I believe in. We all carry around stress and hardship, and when we keep it inside, it starts to chip away. Therapy is a safe place, and therapy is for everyone. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Ruthie today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Ruthie. BetterHelp.com slash Ruthie.
0: A new season of Bridgerton is here.
2: Welcome back to River Cafe, Table 4.
0: I was
1: in Mexico in January. And Lucky I, year. I was in um, Nayarit, so it was yeah. uh, on the Pacific Coast. Yeah. Do you
2: love the food of Mexico?
1: I do. Actually, yes, I, I realized do. when I was there how much yeah. I missed it.
2: I was shocked by Not shocked, but the only Mexican food that I'd had before I went to Mexico was that kind of Mexican food where you get so many dishes on a plate, and yeah. it's also heavy. And then you go, and it's so... It's so clean yeah. and refined, and and uh, I love the breakfast. Oh yeah, when
1: I was so when I made Cine Nombre, we yeah. were based um, in uh, Mexico City a lot, and when we drive to the studio, a lot of the early morning sort of uh, mm. commuters would stop at these vendors mm. and get in line and order this like sort of steaming mm. milky drink, and I didn't know what it was, and I so I asked um, you know our location scout if we could stop one time and have this, and it was a kind of a, a cornmeal drink with cinnamon and sugar. It was just delicious. And from every day on after that, I would stop. Mm. My breakfast would be to have some of that.
2: Did you cook on set?
1: They have this thing uh, in Mexico you do with your crews, which is different than the States, which is you work a six day week, but the six day is just a half day. Mm. And at the end of the half day, it's not a written rule, but it's an expected rule that you have what's called a snack. And a snack is not like peanut butter on toast Mm. and hand it around. It's beer and tequila Mm -hmm. and a cooked lunch and the entire crew kind of. Basically, gets drunk together and hangs out, mm-hmm. and you sort of—it's a bonding moment. You get your any kind of tension that was building up out for the week, and then I'm sure a lot of new relationships started out mm-hmm. of that as well. But the mm-hmm. snack was like one of the best parts of yeah. the filming week. And then you had the rest of Saturday to recover and Sunday, and then start working on Monday. And you know, usually like the rest of Saturday was usually driven by Pache, our our production designer. You know, yeah, you know, leading the the parade oh. into uh, whatever kind of shenanigans. Mexico City offered on a Saturday it's like really common I think in Latin America tonight dinner until after 10pm or 11pm and I was talking to a friend of mine about they invited me over for brunch and the idea of like breakfast and then between breakfast and lunch is brunch and there's lunch hmm. and they had never heard of the term liner. the term what linner oh, right. which is lunch <laughs> between and lunch and dinner yeah right which then got us thinking about well then what's between dinner and breakfast the, the, and little, and then, then it it just, it? it's just dickfist and then we realized that, that Dick Fist really was the 2 or 3 a.m. You know, food you had after going out to a bar or a club or whatever. And, and now, you know, at one year of lockdown, none of us could remember the last time we had Dick Fist. Yeah, when did you have Dick Fist thus? I, I really don't think it's got to be at least three years now because I was also just working so hard before, before lockdown. But actually, that's not true. On our night shoots, we had Dick Fist.
2: They had four
1: or 5 a.m. meals. But in Mexico, what I loved was, you know, after a hard night out, you'd go, there was a couple places you'd go. So either like if you're in Guadalajara, you'd go out and you'd have tacos made of uh, Mm.
2: tongue,
1: like two or three in the morning, which are just delicious, Mm. like really, really tender meat, Mm. you know, and a great way to sort of like cap off, you know, whatever hangover you might have the next day. But in Mexico City, you'd go to this place. It was like called the blind goat Mm. or something like that. And you'd have tacos al pastor. What's that? It's uh, a pastor to be the one that's sort of, you'd probably equate it to the kind of uh, shawarma you'd see in the Middle East Mm -hmm, when the meat's mm -hmm. cooking on a vertical skewer, Mm -hmm. slowly rotating has a pineapple on top. But I think what really makes it popular, it's the sauce they put on top and it's kind of like a brown sort of um, pepper driven, chili pepper driven sauce. And it's Mm -hmm. just so smoky and delicious and rich with that little bit of pineapple, the meat. And that sauce and the corn tortillas—it was like the perfect. What way time in the morning and
2: would that be? Anywhere oh, from like two order.
1: to five a.m. Yeah. You know, until the yeah. sun was coming up. Yeah. yeah.
2: Do you go to restaurants when you're filming? Do you like not used to come to the river cafe? The
1: river cafe as often yeah. as we could. Yeah. Uh, you know, we used to have a kind of like a, every now and then a kind of crew catch up dinner just to, mm. you know, get all on the same page while having good pizzas and wine and yeah.
2: Do you work over food? Do you like have a meal out to just yeah? You, you would do that, but right. would you? we
1: ate in a lot. We had a lot of late dinners at Pinewood, mm. you know, on Bond, where the producers and Daniel and I would be there working on the script and just trying to sort out all the kind of, you know, dilemmas we had in front of us just to get through it.
2: Are there dinner scenes in the movie? Are there food scenes in the movie? There
1: is a food scene in the movie. It was an interrupted food scene.
2: Because in True Detective, my favorite of all time, there's a scene where he's with his wife. Matthew McGoughby. He's isn't he? He's in a diner and there's no food. And they're talking about something really personal about uh,
1: that was, their... there. Was, he's had a scene with Michelle yeah. Monaghan, yeah. kind of deeper in, yeah. in that diner. But early, I think in episode one, he comes over to dinner at um, uh, Woody Harrelson's yeah. character's house.
2: And he gets drunk. Is he? Yeah. And, and yeah, yeah. He, gets,
1: he drinks a little too much. Or he shows up, I think, a little bit drunk.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, but what was interesting about shooting that scene is Woody, for example,
2: yeah.
1: doesn't eat meat. In fact, he's vegan right. and we were having spaghetti. And so we had to figure out a different set of noodles for him. And we ended up using these kind of uh, spaghetti squash oh. for his. But I remember when we were shooting it and he was chewing and talking, you know, spaghetti squash has a distinct crunchy <laughs> sound, you know, when you're eating. And so in the scene you have this, actually, I find it's a really pleasing sound, mm, you know, says so yeah. as Woody's eating, his food, it's got a nice kind of like hearty <laughs> kind of like, you know, jaw. You know, cutting kind of sound to it, and everyone else has that, kind of has that sloppy, noodly sound, you know, as they're eating.
2: Did Jane Eyre have a food? We had a, what do you we do with home, food movies? We yeah, call it food. the Home
1: Economist who makes yeah. the food on a movie, and uh, we had an amazing one on Jane Eyre who who made this ham, the sort of Christmas ham for uh, a scene when uh, Blanche Ingram arrives with this big party, so the house is sort of a buzz preparing all the food, and they had this ham there, and I was just we we're prepping the scene, and I just happened to take a little slice of it just to see how it tasted. Mm. And it was probably one of the best hams I've ever had. And over the course of the scene, that ham got smaller and smaller because I couldn't stop <laughs> couldn't eating it. You know. And I liked it so much, I literally sought out The Home Economist after we are done just to get the recipe to that ham. It was did she so give it to you? She did, yeah.
2: Oh, let's make it.
1: I've never made it, but I want to, yeah.
2: Okay, if you have it somewhere, we could try, I definitely try I and make still, it. Yeah. yeah. I was trying to think about food in movies. I mean, again, it goes back to the drama of the sea bass and salt and the drama of Feeding people and the yeah. drama of watching them respond. You know, your creativity is there forever. We can watch the first movie you ever made and it lasts. And I often think that I make something I'm really proud of and then it, it's gone. That's right. No, it's, a, it's, a like it's over. It's very different, <laughs> it's right? Yeah. Is, you cook and you cook and you cook and then they eat it and yeah. then it's sort of it's over. done. It's over. You know,
1: there is something I think more meaningful in things that don't last yeah. because you're forced to appreciate it in the brief moments it exists. And there's the immortality of film, so if you think about like Sunset Boulevard, Gloria Swanson walking down the stairwell saying, I'm ready for my close-up, she will always be that age for the people who watch that film, you know, even if she's long gone. There is something special about it existing forever, but then because it's, it exists forever, sometimes people may not watch it because yeah. they can just keep pushing it off till a later time, where it's a great meal. You can't delay that. You have to appreciate it while it exists.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And also, it's memories, isn't it? I mean, just when you were talking about your father or your mother or going to a restaurant, it's the
0: memories. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the tonne. fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday.
1: Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: I was trying to think when we met, yeah. and it was a dinner, it was very bizarre, the River Cafe was actually cooking the that's meal. That's right, that's remember? right. Yeah. And it was a dinner for Jake, Jill yeah. and all, yeah. and it was given by Cartier, mm-hmm. and it was, it was so a very So we jewelry shop, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and we were sitting there. Yeah, and on New Bond
1: Street or something. Yeah, yeah,
2: in this fancy place, yeah. and I remember I was introduced to you, and I said, well, how long do I have to wait until I tell you that the first season of true detective, changed my life or whatever. <laughs> but I think that it's nice that we met over food and we talk about food. Yeah. And then I think the first text message that you sent me was a photograph of tomato sauce yeah. that yeah. you've made. and Specifically then I...
1: the butter part of it. Oh, well,
2: that's right. The, the step, step.
1: <laughs> which I don't know if I could say that out loud, if that's a family secret. You can secret. say it. You can say it. <laughs> well, the secret is dropping in that stick of butter right before it's being served in the Pomodoro sort of pasta mix in the pot, you know, and I don't know why it tastes better, but because butter, probably. Butter,
2: butter but tastes good. Is, but what yeah. did that, Jed, you made it before, when you used to cook before? I never
1: used butter before. No. And that was a, I walked away from that dinner we had, which was a mm. different dinner, was like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to use this. Yeah. <laughs> I knew yeah. I was going to use this again. I actually asked another uh, common friend I have with Jake, which is Greta Caruso, uh, ah. asked Greta for advice, like on a little napkin, we were at a, at a, also at a at dinner trying to figure out what's the best shape of the kitchen for someone like me who's not a professional cook by any means, but I like to cook and... Like to have people over and cook for multiple people, I think during lockdown a lot of people experimented with different kinds of cooking and baking and whatever. And I remember um, as lockdown was easing and people could come over to the house, I decided to make ramen, like Tomkotsu ramen, which was like an, an eight-day process to get that stock and everything you know done by scratch. And then when you actually serve the ramen, you kind of have to do the noodles right before you're serving a bowl and all these other sort of ingredients had to go in. everything has to be timed pretty precisely and I'd never done it before but I wanted to get it all right so that was actually pretty stressful and like I'd just done bond and I don't think it ever felt that much stress (laughs) as I was preparing that bowl of ramen and hoping that it and did
2: you how many was it for
1: I ended up making like eight bowls of ramen yeah yeah and then I still had enough like stock for about Thirty more people. Yeah. I think that kind of killed my uh, my cooking routine for lockdown. Yeah. That was yeah. like that was, was like good. the kind of the,
2: yeah. It's like people making a lot of bread in lockdown yeah. too, weren't they? I think people made a lot of food that took a long yeah. time, that took the process, and yeah. and uh, certainly for the first lockdown here, you couldn't buy flour apparently anywhere because everybody was making bread. Yeah, yeah. And
1: because everyone was alone, you try to like do almost like virtual meals together. Like my dad and I oh, yeah. did a virtual meal where we cooked the same thing, but like you know, nice. I'm obviously ahead of his time zone. So it's nice. my dinner, his lunch. And then like nice. India and I did a pasta for my lunch, her dinner, you know, so where we nice cook the nice. same thing. So it feels like we at least yeah. got to eat together.
2: But what about your father and cooking? What What was it like growing up? Did your father cook when yeah, you were yeah. growing so, up? So my was he the cook in the family?
1: He was the cook in the family. And like, he was the one, when we talk about uh, careers or jobs, right? He always had a job, never like a career that he loved. Mm. And I think he always dreamed about opening a restaurant one day, which never happened, but like enjoy cooking and cooking for lots of people. And uh, one of our sort of like bonding things when I was a kid was like trying to guess the ingredients of a meal at a restaurant. And so really to sit there and taste the food and and to try to break down its particulars. There was this Cambodian restaurant we used to go to when I was a kid that had this one special kind of pork chop that had like the best glaze. And we're always trying to figure out, you know, what were the elements, you know, in the sauce that that Mm. created that flavor. Do you still do that? Try to guess the flavors? Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, Yeah, do you? Yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: Because I think there's a real palate, you know. I think of how, I mean, it's interesting even with wine, how people, you know, that thing. I used to go on wine tastings with my, again, with Rose, and she would say, you know, this wine tastes of chocolate and cigarettes. But it is, it's all to do with the, you know, the memories and the associations and the taste of food. And so I think that what we're, you know, talking about sort of. Being together and food and memories. There's also the sense of comfort of food. There's excitement. You're such a you're such an adventurous eater. I mean, I have to say that you know, <laughs> I think you're a pretty adventurous person, but you certainly are an adventurous eater. You know, spiders and you know um, whale blubber. Whale blubber. <laughs> no, we didn't have the horse. I like didn't have the horse. Have co- the horse co- so i'd like to meet your friend he on the scale of adventure he probably does win but you are you are an adventurous eater and that's really that's it it's it's fabulous well you know i i
1: don't know if i do it for the experience or the clout is definitely from curiosity Mm. as well i mean i can the whale in particular i can I'll never forget what whale tastes like. What did it taste like? Well, there's blubber and then there's different kinds of fermented meats yeah. as well, you know, and and one of them is you ferment, whether it's seal or whale meat, you can ferment it in its blood. And that's probably even funkier. Like the blubber is kind of mellow compared to yeah. that, but that taste of, of whale blood, that iron heavy whale blood is so strong that when I went to Nantucket years later, when I went to the whaling museum in Nantucket, I could smell the blood on the presses in the museum that hadn't been used in 150 years, just cause yeah. I, there was enough residual, you know, if you've never had whale blood, I don't know if you could connect those yeah. two sensations,
2: but so it stays in your yeah. stay. That's again, back to the, back the to memory. memory. Yeah. yeah. But did you like it? I mean, did you, did you like the taste? Is um, it something that you thought this is I really delicious?
1: Probably not. Like, yeah. is it one of those things where, Oh man, i really wish I had some whale blood right now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't think that that would ever occur, but it, Really was when we were out in negative 30, negative 50 degree environments, it kept you warm. It really, you felt the heat coming from inside you. But uh, I mean, yeah, I I would still say as as adventurous as those things sound, my everyday sort of cravings are are quite normal, I think.
2: What do you crave?
1: I mean, pasta I could eat almost every day. Yeah. And I love sashimi and sushi.
2: Mm.
1: I think those two things are what I eat probably around, mm. you know, the course of a week, pretty, pretty often, probably and, eat too much pasta.
2: And if you said for comfort?
1: For me, yeah. it would probably be fried rice.
2: Mm. And it
1: goes back, I think to, you know, my dad for breakfast is, you know, watching cartoons or something when you're a kid and mm. having a bowl of fried rice. And it was the most, if I told you the recipe, it doesn't sound even Asian at all because it involves ketchup. Ketchup? Yeah. Um, and I, and I found out much later, I mean, for me, that's just what it was. That's fried rice. But obviously later, contextualizing where that mm. came from, what it came from was, so my grandparents were in the internment camps during World War II, and my father was born in the internment camps as well as, well as my uncles. And so you were given certain rations in the camps. Mm. In fact, my grandpa was a cook, one of them. And um, mayonnaise, ketchup, those kind of ingredients were quite common. So you make new recipes out of what you're given. You just make do. So my dad grew up on a fried rice that wasn't made with soy sauce, it was made with ketchup. And it was really basic. You use whatever vegetables or meats you had from the mm. day before with the rice, put it all together and cook it up. And my favorite version was just the simplest one, which was just bacon, onions, and then put an egg with a yolk, you know, still runny on top. And that to me is like the epitome of comfort food. Mm. But strange that the legacy goes back to an internment camp. Would
2: you make it now?
1: Yeah, make it pretty often yeah, Make still. it often, yeah. 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 I just like, yeah, like even when my dad would use other vegetables in it, like you do like the real yeah. proper way of doing fried rice, I still prefer just the onions At and bacon. And
2: the bacon, yeah. yeah. So would you? Would it be the rice, just yeah. plain rice? So
1: you whatever you'd made from dinner the night before, you keep that rice. Mm. And this is something else. I just, in my family, we just left the rice out. You didn't mm. put it in the fridge and the next mm. morning. Yeah, someone told me later on you're not supposed in to do that. In restaurants,
2: that's like a big no-no. Yeah, because yeah. apparently it's toxic. They say the bacteria in rice is almost worse than anything But I think do. if
1: you grow up eating, you it, grew up eating it, it doesn't fine. really affect you. Yeah. So, like, yeah. you know, I would leave my rice out all night, and the next yeah. day, yeah. you know, you make the fried rice. And then usually there's so okay, much fried there. rice. So what do
2: you do? Put oil in the pan, and then you take that rice? No, I
1: use the the, the fat from the bacon. So I start oh, off, you know, you I, I cut the bacon. the bacon in pieces first, and then I slow cook the bacon. So that the oil doesn't evaporate too quickly, and then uh, salt and pepper the, the bacon, and then then add the onions, and then add the rice, which is usually in big chunky mm. bits because it's been sitting.
2: Mm-hmm. Then you yeah.
1: squeeze a bunch of like farting ketchup <laughs> on the top of it, and then you chop it up and get that going. And then once it's kind of mixed to a nice sort of a light red pinkish color, boil it up. And then separately, you can just cook some eggs to slap on top. It's really quick.
2: Okay. Well now, I've got some expectations of when I come and stay in your house that we're going to have yeah, all all we I going to have the fried I'll, I'll make sure rice. Put we're going to have the, the fried rice maybe. <laughs> we could have the um the ramen. We could do that. It sounds, you know, you're you're a great cook. You're a great director and you're a great friend. Thank you, Carrie.
1: Oh, thank you, Ruthie. Um,
2: to visit the online shop of the River Cafe go to shoptherivercafe.co.uk.
1: River Cafe Table 4 is a production of iHeartRadio and Atomized Studios. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
2: Learn more at betterhelp.com. That's better, H E L P.com.
0: A new season of Bridgerton is here.